came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for him to help us understand his word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today, and we pray that it would uh, intrude into our lives, uh, that, it would, uh, that it would get into our hearts, that it would work its way into our lives, uh, that it might transform us for the sake of Jesus, that our lives would be lived for him and would be about him. We pray that our lives would be changed because we have come to see Jesus Christ in, in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of my friends in high school was a talented artist. Uh, he, he was able to draw and to paint and to do things with color pencil and all that was just incredible. Um, he, he, he attracted a lot of attention because he was such a good artist. And I remember uh, one day at lunch in high school, you know, we were... Uh, the, we were weird and awkward boys sitting by ourselves, huddled together at the lunchroom table, hoping no one else paid attention to us or took notice of us. When all of these popular girls kind of circled our table, but they were there to see my friend John. And they asked him, will you draw a picture of us? And I confess that in that moment, I was really jealous of my friend and his talent. Because I thought to myself, man, if I had that ability, then I could get the attention that he's getting, which was what I thought I really, really wanted. Well, after some time, uh, after probably a lot of time, I don't know when exactly it was, but after some time, it dawned on me that those girls didn't really care about my friend. They didn't really want my friend. What they wanted was themselves. Because what they admired about my friend was what he could do for them. And what could he do? Well, he could draw a likeness of them that they could then take and put on the social media of the day, which was the inside of the locker. Or they could take around and they could show people. And in their hands, they could have proof that they were attractive, they were uh, ad admirable, <laughs> that, that they were somebody that that should be looked up to, that deserved the attention that they got. So what they really wanted was themselves. It took a long time for, me, for that to dawn on me. Um, again, they didn't want my friend. They wanted what my friend could do for them. They wanted what my friend could give to them. But they could care less for him. Now, thankfully, my friend John has 
turned that into a fairly successful career as an artist in New Orleans. Um, he's, he's learned how to use people and <laughs> manipulate them to give him a lot of money so that they, he would draw them, right? Well, what we see today in this passage is a little bit like that, where people come to Jesus, but they don't, they don't really want Jesus. What they want is what Jesus can do for them. What they want is themselves. And in this passage, what we see is actually true belief. That's hard for us to see in this passage, but it's there. But it's true belief that is uh, kind of contrasted with selfish unbelief. But the selfish unbelief stands out more than anything else, but it's actually very um, it's tantalizing. And it's easy to confuse true belief for selfish unbelief. We see those things in this passage. This is, again, the third sign in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John in chapters 1 through 11, that section of John is called the Book of Signs because John is showing us these miraculous signs that Jesus uh, is performing, just, just seven of them, for the sake of proving the divinity of Jesus, for the sake of saying you need to believe in Jesus. They are proof that his words, uh, or that he has authority behind his words, that he is God. That's why he's showing us these signs. And, and what these signs do is they draw the line in the sand and they say, either you will recognize and admit Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, you will come to him and receive him as he says he is your Savior, or you will stay on the other line and you will reject Jesus. You will reject his salvation. That's what these signs do. You have to make a decision. Uh, I want to look at this sign in three ways. First of all, we're going to see in this passage that Jesus reveals a subtle unbelief in the very first part, 43 through 48. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus actually heals in spite of that unbelief in 49 and 50. And then in conclusion, we're going to see that Jesus kind of how he calls us from our unbelief. So the first thing that Jesus does is he reveals a subtle unbelief. All right, so what we're looking at in this episode, it comes after some very important other episodes in the Gospel of John. And you have to remember where Jesus has been and where he is. So we're told here that he is in Galilee. Galilee is kind of Jesus's home port. That's where he goes back to. Uh, you know, he'll travel around, but he always goes back to Galilee. Well, where was he before this? We were told in John chapter 2 that he had gone down to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of the major geographical hub of this area. It was the center of Israel. So Jesus went, went to Jerusalem. He stayed there. And then we're told after that, uh, after he was there for a while, that he met this man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was called the teacher of Israel. He was a very prominent teacher of the people of Israel. He was a Pharisee. He was powerful. He was wealthy. But he came to Jesus at night, kind of hiding himself. And Jesus has this whole interaction with him where he, he teaches the teacher of Israel and condemns the teacher of Israel because he doesn't know anything about God. So then he goes from there, and Jesus leaves Jerusalem, and he goes north. So you have Jerusalem here. He goes north to this area of Samaria. And Samaria was northern Israel. It was an area where most of the Jews would never go to because the Samaritans 
they thought were dogs. They did not want to interact with them. But in John chapter 4, verse 4, John tells us this, and he, that's Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because he was going to Galilee. But the problem is, Galilee is over here. So here or here. And there was a nice little road that traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee that Jesus could have taken. But John says he had to go to Samaria. He had to go to the place where no Jews ever wanted to go. Why did he have to go there? Well, he had to go there because he had to meet this woman. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets with the woman at the well who is not a believer, who has some understanding of the Messiah from from her religious beliefs, but doesn't really understand who Jesus is. Jesus, in other words, goes to this kind of out of the way, outskirt place, and he meets with somebody who believes in him. And through her, all of these people come to faith in who Jesus is in this area where you would expect to find no faith, no belief. And then Jesus goes from that area to Galilee, another one of the hotbeds of Jewish activity where you would expect for people to believe in Jesus. And what do you find there? You actually find unbelief. So understand this. Geographically, Jesus went from Jerusalem to Samaria to Galilee. In Jerusalem, nobody believed in him. In Galilee, no one believed in him. But in the outskirts, the theological outskirts, people believed in Jesus. So there's a geographical trip that Jesus is taking, but there's also a theological trip that Jesus is taking. And there's, again, this question that's for us. Will we believe like the Samaritans or will we reject Jesus like the Jews? It's kind of the big flashing question that stands out here. So how do we know that these people rejected Jesus? Well, John actually tells us, look in, 44, or look in verse 44. He departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. John gives us this little parenthetical statement where he says, you need to remember Jesus is going back to his hometown, and what's going to happen? He's not going to be accepted in his hometown. It's kind of a foreshadowing for us of the kind of rejection that's coming. But remember I said it's, it's a subtle rejection. And this is the subtleness of it. I want you to see that in this section, there's two types of unbelief that we see. Both are unbelief, but there's two types of unbelief. The first type of unbelief is found in the, generally speaking, in the people of Galilee. Look in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So you read there, well, the Galileans, they welcome Jesus. It's another word, they receive Jesus. In other words, they show him hospitality. They want him around. And you might say to yourself, well, wait a second, you said they don't believe. It sure does look like there that they do. So how can I say that this is actually unbelief? It's for the same reason that I can say that those girls in high school really didn't care about my friend. They just wanted what he could do for him. And you get it here at the end of 45. For they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. What did Jesus do at the feast? He cleared out the temple. See, Jesus, kind of one of the homeboys from Galilee, went into Jerusalem and he really gave it to those elitist, arrogant leaders who thought they were so much better than everyone else. So here, our guy comes home 
after elevating our status. And of course, we welcome him. They wanted Jesus for what he had done for them. He elevated their status. He brought the big guys down to their level. But they didn't really care about Jesus. That's the first kind of unbelief. Secondly, you see this in the people of Cana. Look in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Um, And you also see it in the official son, but we'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. And you have to remember, at Cana in Galilee, this fairly small town, Jesus went to this wedding and he turned 145 gallons of water into wine. It had not been that long since he was there at that wedding feast. And more than likely, the people of Cana were still enjoying this very fine wine that he had made for them. And word had gotten around that Jesus is the one that had done this. So why did they like Jesus? Why did they receive Jesus? Why did they want him? They wanted him for what he could do for them. He provided for them. So in both of these cases, people that are, have their status elevated because of Jesus or people that get something, they see him do a neat trick, they get entertainment or they enjoy what he gives them. In both of those cases... It is unbelief that he is dealing with. And how do we know? Well, Jesus says in 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Understand this. In both of those two signs that they had, they had the proof that he was the Messiah, that he was Jesus, that they should believe in him, but they did not believe. They had all the proof they needed, but they wanted more proof. Now, I can think of a few examples of this very thing in 21st century Christianity. Um, I'm going to give you two easy ones, two two very easy that are just easy for us to pick off real quick. Uh, I want you to think of the wicked politician who claims religious belief as a way to lend credibility to his candidacy. You know, he may even pop into a church from time to time as long as the cameras are rolling to catch him so that everyone else knows, oh, well, he's a trustworthy person. Well, what is that person doing? That person is using Christianity to bolster themselves, to raise their status. But you also find it in uh, in what I've heard happens at Christian colleges. Many Christian colleges on Sunday mornings, people, students will sleep in on Sunday mornings. And then they wake up late, they get dressed like they've been to church, and then they go eat at the dining hall because they want everyone to think that they went to church. Okay, I've actually heard that happens in some uh, more conservative public institutions as well. Uh, but you see, that those people really just want what Jesus does for them, the appearance that Jesus gives them. They don't really want Jesus. And that kind of unbelief, in both of those cases, a politician or, or supposed Christian college students, those are easy targets. I think there's actually much... Harder, subtle unbelief that's hard for us to see here at faith when we only participate in worship or in the life of the church when it does something for us. When we come to church out of a sense of duty or tradition, when we say the creed, we sing the hymns, when we hear the word of God or even ourselves read the word of God, but it just kind of rolls off the tongue. It doesn't really penetrate into our lives without changing us. I mean, there's a subtle unbelief that says church is really for what it does for me, not for what I can do in worshiping God. Okay, 
It's a subtle form of unbelief that we need to watch out for. And the Galileans and the Canaanites and the people of Faith Presbyterian Church have every proof that we need, every reason to believe that Jesus Christ should receive our worship. But they didn't do it. And oftentimes I think we fall into that trap as well. So that's the first thing we see. It's a very subtle unbelief that's present there. And I think at times it's present in our own lives. It's present in my life as well. But here's the good thing that we see. That Jesus heals in spite of unbelief. And you see that in 49 and 50. Um, We're picking up the story with the official son here. So the official son, uh, we read in 46, that he hears that Jesus has gone back to Galilee. Now he's stationed at a city in Galilee, in Capernaum. Jesus has gone to visit Cana, which is about 14 miles away from, um, from Capernaum. And this man hears about this. He has a sick son, and he wants to go see Jesus. Now we don't know much about this man. We don't know really anything about him other than he was a Roman official. But that, that title actually is very helpful because we know that he was an official in the Roman government. Whatever he was, he was fairly high up. He had a lot of authority in this region in the, in the Roman government. And because of that, more than likely, he was a Gentile, meaning he did not believe in Jesus. Well, you should know something now you know, Jesus went to this area of the Samaritans where nobody believed him, and then everybody did. Well, now we meet another Gentile. The question is, what's going to happen with him? What's his interaction going to be like with Jesus? But he comes to Jesus. He doesn't come with faith. How do we know that Jesus doesn't come in faith? How do we know that he comes in unbelief? Well, we know it in two ways. First of all, we know it because of his concern. He comes not really knowing who Jesus is. What is he concerned about? Is he concerned about approaching the creator of heaven and earth, his own creator? No, he's concerned about his son. He actually comes with a very legitimate and important concern about the well-being of his son. But he's coming to Jesus just like the Canaanites. They want something from him. That's how he comes. He wants Jesus not as a Messiah, but as a healer. He wants Jesus to fix his problems. And I think it's safe to say that in this moment, the man is worshiping at the altar of his son's health more than he's worshiping at the altar of Jesus Christ. And we should completely understand this because we do this all the time. We make our families, our jobs, our American freedoms, our various identities that we are assigned in this world the most important thing about us. And this man comes to Jesus, yes, in a great need as a father, but he doesn't realize, and oftentimes we don't realize this as well, that our greatest need before the creator of heaven and earth is not to have our lives fixed Our greatest need is to have our sin forgiven. And this man doesn't come understanding that or needing that. And Jesus sums that up when he says in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's like this. In our hearts, we tell Jesus that we're not going to believe him. We're not going to trust him. We're not going to give him our hearts unless he does something for us. Unless he actually bows down to our gods that we present before him. 
And I want you to notice what this exactly this official is asking of Jesus. In verse 49, look at what it says there. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He has no clue who Jesus is. And none of them really know who Jesus is. In order for this boy to be healed, he thinks, Jesus has to come and do something. Jesus has to come and do some kind of magic ritual over the boy. He has to do some kind of hocus pocus to fix his son. And in that case, what this man believes is that Jesus is really just a man and there's nothing special about him at all. He thinks that Jesus has figured out some kind of formula to tap into the, some sort of mystical power out in the universe. And that's what he sees about Jesus. And that's what we see about Jesus oftentimes as well. And this is also the very thing that Jesus' good friend Martha believed about Jesus. It's the same sort of unbelief. And Martha believed in Jesus, but she displayed a type of unbelief, the same kind this man is doing. In John eleven twenty one. With the episode of Lazarus dying, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So I don't want to be too hard on this man because Martha should have known better. This man is simply expressing a form of unbelief that we should know better uh, than to express. But I want you to see the really important thing is not how this man approaches Jesus. The really important thing is how, this, is how Jesus approaches this man. He wants Jesus to come, and Jesus doesn't go. He wants Jesus to heal on his terms, but Jesus refuses to do that. And in doing that, he actually gives this man something much greater. And in verse 50, he says this, Go, your son will live. And now this man believes in Jesus. He didn't come with belief, but now at the word of Jesus, he believes. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he went on his way. He learned, he, this man leans hard into the words of Jesus, and he obeys Jesus' command immediately. That's the proof that he really trusts Jesus. He simply obeys Jesus. I want you to think for a minute about the similarities and the differences between this Gentile unbeliever and all of those other Jewish unbelievers that are surrounding both unbelief. What's the difference between them? Well, prior to this, the Jewish unbelievers had lots of proof. They had the miracle of the wedding, and they also had what Jesus had done at the Passover feast. And yet they still don't believe. But what about this man? This man had heard about Jesus, but that's probably it. He actually had less information to go on than when he went to Jesus. The Jews had educated unbelief, but this man had uneducated unbelief. And at the end of the day, they're both still unbelief. Both deserve the wrath of God. Both deserve exactly what's coming to them. But what does this man who does not believe receive? He receives healing, but more importantly, he receives faith. The faith he truly needs to not have the wrath of God on him. So why does this man receive faith when the, the 
when all of the other Jews don't have faith? Why this man? Why this Galilean or why this Gentile unbeliever? Well, it's the same thing that Jesus has taught to Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the same thing that he taught to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Interestingly, the educated man, Nicodemus, didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but the uneducated Samaritan woman understood perfectly well. What is needed is the work of the Spirit and the life in order to produce faith. And this Gentile unbeliever receives the work of the Spirit and he believes. He simply believes the word of Jesus and he goes away justified before him. And he believes actually before he has the proof. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to believe the word of Jesus when I go back home. And Jesus heals in spite of his unbelief. He doesn't say, okay, as soon as you believe, your son is going to be healed. He says, Go, your son is healed. And then he believes. He believes before he has the proof. And that's a great sign to us about how belief works. The Spirit moves to induce faith in this man. And Jesus says this very thing, that that he believes without seeing. And Jesus speaking to Thomas later on in the Gospel of John, he says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's John 20, 29. The call here for us is to see the words of Jesus, to see this and to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus. In conclusion, what Jesus is doing is he's calling us from our unbelief. At the end of this, what happens, the man goes back home. It's a 14-mile trip. It takes about a day and a half to do this trip if you're walking. And this man likely was walking. He, he probably left on on this morning, as soon as daybreak hit, he walked all day. He gets to Jesus at about one o'clock in the afternoon. And Jesus heals his son. He immediately turns and goes back home. That's what it says here. Um, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. He goes back home and as he's walking back home, his servants actually need him. It's the next day because he spent the night somewhere waiting to go up. You don't travel during night. It's very dangerous. So the next day he gets up, his servants actually meet him and he says, what time did the healing happen? And they said, the seventh hour, which is one o'clock. He said, well, that's the exact time that I met with Jesus. And then what happens? We're told, we're told here, this is what happens. And he himself believed and all of his household believed. So here's the thing that I want you to see. True faith takes Jesus at his word. It isn't a faith that doesn't look for proof. Jesus gives lots of proof that he is who he says he is. But true faith trusts the truth when it hears Jesus. And that's a way of saying that we're not looking for extra biblical validation or explanation outside of the word of God. I love it when archaeologists find proof that God's word is true. I love that. It's wonderful that they find evidence that the stories of the Bible are actually historical fact. But we do not rest our faith on what archaeologists tell us. We do not rest our faith on what scholars tell us. We rest our faith on the Word of God, on what Jesus says. It's not about how we feel about the gospel message. It's not about what the gospel message does for us that makes it true. True faith simply rests on Jesus. 
But secondly, true faith is obedient faith. What happens when Jesus says, go home? What does the man do? He simply turns around and he goes home. (laughs) He doesn't say, wait a second, Jesus, hold on. I mean, I'm not leaving here until you give me some proof. He doesn't do that. He simply obeys the word of Jesus. If you have true faith in Jesus, it will display itself in obedience to Jesus and to his commands. And that means, yes, the Ten Commandments, but it also means all of the other things that he commanded about being kind with each other, about loving one another, about putting each other's needs before your own needs. And it also means at the end of Matthew when he says, go into all the world making, uh, uh, baptizing, I'm sorry, making disciples of all the nations by teaching them all that I have commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What about you? Do you see the signs of obedience in your life? Not in order to be saved, but because he has already saved you. Do you say, when the Lord says go, do you say, I'm going? And you pick up and you leave. This man, third thing is, I'm sorry, Jesus, this is the most important thing. Jesus only saves sinners who do not believe in him. Do you understand that? Jesus only saves sinners who do not believe in him. This man did not come to Jesus with belief, but he left with the most important thing, faith for himself and faith that was contagious that spread to his family. And also, his son was healed as a bonus. He left believing Jesus, believing in Jesus. And he left with the greatest gift that he could ever have. And the healing was, again, just bonus in the process. Well, it's a new year. It's a great time to come to Jesus. That's what this man did. That's the only thing that he did right. This man came to the right Jesus for all the wrong reasons. I want you to come to Jesus today. It doesn't matter how you come. Come to Jesus. I hope that you do. And I hope that you come today. And this isn't a message just for those who have never come to Jesus. This is for all of us to come to Jesus every day. To drink deeply of the well of Jesus Christ. We need it today. We need it for this year. We need it for every moment of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message today. And we pray that you would use it. For your sake, that we would come to Jesus, that we would drink deeply of him, that we would feed off of Jesus. Even now, as we go in to take the Lord's Supper together, that it would be a reminder to us uh, of all that you've done for us so that we can be in your presence to be with you, to dwell with you forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.